Right, welcome along to another episode of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast. I'm delighted to say joining me, no stranger to the podcast world. We'll get into his uh, many uh, forays into that world, I'm sure. Uh, Jeff Hawkins. Jeff, how's it going? I am well. And and just to bring just to bring up the advice that we gave you prior to recording, never check the comments. Never. So you no, me, no. <laughs> turn off now. I might even turn them off after I've posted the show. Oh, that's great. Do that. Uh, tell us first of all about the uh, Shake Them Ropes on the Voices of Wrestling Network. Yeah, we've been around for what seven, eight years, I think. Now uh, it was originally Rob McCarron who was writing Raw reviews for. Uh, F4W and myself doing a show, and then he uh, he left and had to rebuild the podcast with Chris Novembrino, who's been with Voices of Wrestling for a while. We kind of, uh, our lane in the Voices of Wrestling family is kind of whatever Jeff wants to talk about, but it's mostly WWE because that was the more mainstream thing for people who didn't want to listen to the flagship, which was, you know, very Japanese-centric at the time. But uh, we'll, we'll dabble in that, a little bit of AEW, a little bit of you know, there's something that's in the news or catches my fancy or Chris's fancy. We'll talk about that. And it's, you know, a little bit more lighthearted. There's, <laughs> I had originally wanted to be like Jordan Breen and even my friend Todd Martin, who I always, those are the shows I enjoy listening to. Those like intellectual discussions of wrestling and by educated people, or at least people that sound like they're educated. And I just became a morning DJ, just cracking wise, making jokes, doing bad bits at the time or something like that but uh it, it's a it's a fun listen i think otherwise i wouldn't have been doing it this long but again i don't read the comments so maybe other people disagree. <laughs> <laughs> and you also co-host uh fightful as well tell us about that yeah i'm part-time there now i used to do i used to do smackdown reviews every week oh god like three or four years <laughs> rob and i rob went to be the raw guy and i went to be the smackdown guy and then and may, I might have used to be on Raw for a while, but anyways, Rob eventually quit doing all wrestling-related stuff, and then uh, I stuck around fightful for a while. I like Sean Ross Sapp and the crew that they're doing there. I always have kind of supported them. I'm kind of, uh, right now, I, I'd call myself that veteran bench player that gets called if somebody can't do a show or for the occasional pay-per-view. We've had some great ideas to build out fightful, but uh, a few of those were stolen by other podcasting venues, and access to talent and stuff like that but uh, i like what fightful does over there and they're uh, they're good peeps and then uh i'll go <laughs> since you're going through my resume here been on after buzz a few times i'm better on radio than tv but that was fun <laughs> that's, that, that's uh, maria menounos's gimmick over here in uh, la where they basically have like post shows on youtube for right. every television yeah. show there is uh yeah that's a lot of fun to do i've uh, been on with some very very nice people there and then uh and then once, I got to co-host Wrestling Observer Live with Mike Semperbibi. That was fun. What happened there? How'd that come about? Mike, uh, Mike wanted to vent on my show and did a quid pro quo with me. And so I, uh, I, I, we had uh, Dr. Keith on. and <laughs> Mike over-talked. That's what I'm going to bury Mike a little bit here. Mike over-talked. Didn't let me get a lot of words in, but that was a lot of fun. He goes, hey, you want to come on the show? And I had just quit my job of like 18 years and I was taking a bit of a break. I was like, yeah, I'll come on your, I'll come on the show and do this. Cause I was, I'd usually be at work at the time. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so he asked and we kind of got together doing that. 
But to be fair to Mike, I mean, he's used to presenting with Brian, so he never gets a word in anyway. So it's oh, probably quite yeah. rare well, for him yes. to get to talk. Yeah, this was his chance to, you know, he came on my show to vent because he's like, brother, I just heard his DM is like, brother, I got some opinions I need to get out. I was like, hey, come on the show. We don't usually have guests anymore. <laughs> Reasons. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it was one of those things where guests became, uh, guests were more of a romp thing than a me thing. But, uh, yeah, and then Mike goes, hey, I want to pay you back, come on my show, and then. It was like a big news day, as I recall, too, and then he had like two guests, so it's like, I got to chime in a little bit and see how the sausage was made while the boss man was out, and then they finally got the cameras, I guess they didn't want to see me anymore. <laughs> so obviously this podcast is uh, all about how you became a wrestling fan in the first the place. The origin story! And how, it, and how your sort of fandom has evolved over the years. So what is your sort of earliest memory of, of wrestling? I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, uh, rather toddling town. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, I'm I'm from the generation where WWF never even came south of DC. So this is right in the heart of Jim Crockett Promotions territory in the mid '80s. And I remember, and I don't think kids end up having to do this anymore. But I had to go with a friend to his grandma's house, I think, while he did chores, and then we could play afterwards. This was in 1984. And I was basically locked... <laughs> locked in a room with a television. You know, make sure I don't get out or run away or something like that. But while he's mowing his grandma's lawn, and there's like a small black and white TV there, and I turn on, you know, three basic network channels and two UHFs and one of the UHFs I'm watching there's Bob Cottle interviewing Ric Flair I go, okay this is kind of cool watching that and then all of a sudden Tully Blanchard comes out and starts talking trash to Ric Flair and I'm hooked I'm like this is up I got these guys are gonna fight all right cool I'm here for this and uh yeah it's kind of been a passion ever since I would think I, I didn't watch as much after that first time until about 1985 or so uh, but you know sporadically when I could get it because my, my mom was one of those people who you know Saturdays <laughs> it's not like the kid the gifted kid has enough schoolwork to do we got to put him in activities all day Saturdays and things like that so there was a lot of that but I got to sporadically watch wrestling up through there and then I really became weekly right around Right around summer of 85, I, I would say, right as they're starting the Magnum Tully angle right. and they yeah. got Dusty Flair and all, all those things going in Jim Crockett. And, you know, I, I was kind of blessed in southeastern Virginia because you got not one but two NWA Jim Crockett promotion shows. And then I didn't have cable originally, but when we got cable, that was also a guy said, oh, look, two hours on 6.05 on TBS every week. That's just great. Now, our parents did not enjoy that at all. That uh, We didn't get cable until I think it was 80, I think it was 85 or 86. It was 86. It had to be 86. Uh, I had, I was convalescing because I went to school, middle school in a not-so-good part of town, and, uh, and during a middle school band concert, I remember it was at night. It was dark. 
hear this knock on the door. I thought it was one of my bandmates, and it wasn't. It was five five guys who dragged me out and really just beat the hell out of me, to be honest with you. So I had to kind of a less... <laughs> yeah, I, I had a horn whacked against my head, so that's probably why I'm like this now. But <laughs> I had to do some recuperating, and so it's like my parents, oh, we'll get, we'll get, uh, we'll get Cable while he's there. And what that turned into, my dad hated wrestling. So... The rest of these questions are going to be kind of, it's like later in life is when I started traveling and watching shows, but there was always a knockdown drag out on Saturday nights. I don't know if anybody else had this. Uh, I didn't hear this on any of the other shows, but 7 o'clock on Saturdays was my, was Star Trek The Next Generation, and my dad was a Navy guy, so he was always convinced that this was going to be the week where the engineering crew are the heroes, so he always had to watch that, and we only had one TV, and I wanted to watch wrestling every week. Uh, so it, it was kind of a contentious thing in my house, me watching wrestling. But yeah, if I hadn't gone to Scott Lewis's house and watched or watched the TV while he was doing his chores, so he'd play later, <laughs> I've never uh, been in the situation I'm in. So it's all Scott's fault, basically, is what is what you're trying to say. Well, Scott, Scott, <laughs> I have a lot of blame for it. anyway. He's also the guy who made me start playing football because he was, hey, we'll both sign up together, and then he never signed up. So I'm stuck here playing playing tackle football, getting my butt kicked and stuff. But uh, yeah, that's that's the other thing is like my area was big into athletics, so some sports celebrities. Oh, they always had to play against the teams I was playing on. I was never on the great team. I was on the, oh, Allen Iverson's going to play against your football team today. Oh, great. You know, he's an American basketball star. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's also a great football player. Like the coach of, the coach of one of the NFL teams out here was a year ahead of me in school. So we always played against each other in peewee ball and stuff. So, you know, it's always, it's always the team I'm on that stinks. And I always attribute that to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, what kind of wrestlers captured your imagination? You, you say Ric Flair was like the first one you you saw, and and then you know, but at, but out of that out of that exchange, it was Tully Blanchard that got my attention. Right? Yeah, I was just going to say so, but it was Tully that really captured your imagination. Yeah, yeah. Um, the guys who could talk. Oh, yeah. The guys who were t- you know, the guy, like to me, the best wrestling is just talk smack and fake fighting. So it's like all these guys who were like. I had low self-esteem as a kid, so I would watch this and I'd go, oh, these are guys who are sure, certain of themselves, they're tough guys, <laughs> not knowing, but most of them were tough at the time. Uh, those things, and then also, you know, a few of the spectacle wrestlers caught my attention. Um, I'll answer the question maybe a little bit early here, but my first show, my dad just thought I'd get be done with it if he took me to a spot show, so he took me to a Crockett show in the summer of 85 at the Hampton Coliseum, and the main event was Dusty and Magnum. And Magnum was from our area, too. He was from uh, Virginia Beach, or Chesapeake, uh, against Tully Blanchard and Abdullah the Butcher. And I love Abdullah the Butcher. I do. He's not the best wrestler in the world, but, you know, when he comes in, you know it's going to be trouble. You know it's going to be violence. You know there's going to be blood. And you know it's going to be awesome, you know. I, I, and I really gravitated towards tag teams. Tag teams were always big with me. I think uh, I think Chris had said this during his pod. I, I I just loved the idea of two guys forming a unit, being friends, because I was kind of... Uh, my, my friends were far and few between growing up. I'll, I'll admit that. But it was just 
you know, and the tandem moves interested me a lot more than the singles moves. And the local video store where I was got had WWF uh, compilation from Coliseum, even though we didn't get them on regular TV. You could get it on cable after that, but like the British Bulldogs and the Killer Bees and the Rougeaus and the Heart Foundation were great to watch on those compilation tapes. And then in the NWA, you had the Midnight Express and the Fantastics and the mm-hmm. Sheep Herders. And I, I really, a couple years later, loved Bad Company, which was Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka. You know, Tully and Arn were great. I was always geeked out every year when they started booking the uh, the Crockett Cups, even though I could never go to one. Uh, just because it was like this idea of these tournaments, of all these great teams come together really kind of geek me out, but the wrestlers I always gravitated towards were on the charismatic side, always on the heel side. I was always a heel guy for some reason. It, it was just, you know, it's easy to cheer for that handsome, good-looking guy or, you know, the people that everybody likes that everybody's rooting for. My contrarian streak just always kind of kicked in. It's like, ah, I'll root for the Andersons and Blanchard and Flair. They seem great. Let's do that. And, like, the Midnights. Like, Jim Cornette, I just absolutely adored watching him just cut promos and never shut up. That's like I'm doing now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, those were the kinds of guys I, I, I really liked. And you, like I say, you already answered the next question, which was what was the first show that you attended? So it was that spot show. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a house show in, in the mid eighties. I didn't get to go. See, I, I grew up in a hotbed of wrestling, but I didn't get to go to a lot of it. Uh, because my mom was a school teacher and, you're not going out that late on a school night. Uh, sir. So even though we had the Hampton Coliseum and the Norfolk Scope near us, I wasn't until I was in my late teens that I really started to go regularly because also one of the other kids in the neighborhood, his mom, um, his mom's main, main name was Zink. And so he was related to Tom Zink. So Tom Zink would always get us tickets whenever he was close by, and then we could go to the shows then. Uh, some interesting occurrences. Uh, Gary Hart once almost started a race riot at one we went to. That was uh, that was fun. He's <laughs> in the shark cage, and we're in Norfolk, and Norfolk is a mostly urban crowd. So he looks down, shouts a racial epithet. <laughs> Me and my friends are just, we're all going to die tonight. This is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> but it was that, um, you know, and there was some odd connections to pro wrestling for me growing up that I didn't even realize until later how how much I could have probably you know at least partook in things like my gym teacher in high school his son was Mitch Snow who was a mid-card guy in the AWA uh, in the mid 80s late 80s he later came back and uh, started a fight with three of my classmates during a baseball practice <laughs> I was like, how, how are all these carnies not uh, not turning me off? But it turned out what what watching wrestling did for me was it helped me make friends because I wasn't making friends amongst my nerdy classmates because you know they're too cool for school to watch wrestling. But the other kids, I, I learned that I probably wouldn't get my butt kicked. I could talk wrestling with guys, which always made it. Which also made watching wrestling a priority for me because I don't want to go to school and get my butt kicked, guys. Or I don't want to be on the bus and get you know made fun of, you know. So let me watch wrestling so I have something to talk about normal children with about. 
So, at any point between starting to watch wrestling in like 85, 86 through to today, have you ever at any point lost interest in wrestling and, and didn't like it at any point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship as we, as we move on. But the thing was, I mean, it, it's weird because I'm so old. I'm too old to be watching wrestling. I'm a grown-ass man, David. I, I should not be watching this much wrestling. But... You know, around, I, I moved out to Los Angeles, um, and I started going for a career in show business, so going out to, like, comedy clubs on Fridays and Saturdays and, and doing stand-up and improv out there, uh, you know, it, it turned me off of wrestling for a little bit, because I think SmackDown was on Fridays during that time, and that was during the SmackDown 6 era. It was just too much wrestling, and really... What killed my love of wrestling was Vince McMahon, which makes my position in <laughs> which makes my position as a critic of wrestling all that much more weirder. Um, and actually, it was shortly after I interviewed for Creative in 2001 uh, because I had some TV writing background, and it was during that time where they <laughs> you could either go in and say you knew nothing about wrestling or you were a fan, and it was just ha- depending on how they were feeling that day. You could get the job or not. My my friend who did uh, he he eventually ran Lucha Underground, and I have tapes if he ever becomes even more famous of bad improv shows we did together. Uh, got the job at that time uh, by saying he was a super fan. I kind of I kind of hedged my bets and said, well, I'm a wrestling fan, but not really a fan of your product. I didn't say it like that, but uh, I I knew after the first couple answers for the interview that. Uh, Probably not going to be getting this job. But, like, this man killed two things I loved. He killed Jim Crockett Promotions, and then inadvertently he killed WCW because in 94 when Hogan went there, it was just it was just going to become another WWF clone right. for me. Because, yeah. like, the first time I saw WWF, I went, what is this kitty crap? It was, I was excited, too. I, I went over to a friend's house who had cable, and uh, actually, it was a friend of my parents, and and it was a Tuesday night, and I can watch Tuesday Night Titans. And I had never seen Tuesday Night Titans. I had watched Coliseum videos. I had watched Saturday Night's main event. You know, some of that stuff was okay, a little cheesy for me, but I, you know, I want to see the real show that they're doing out here. You know, whatever. So I watched Tuesday Night Titans, which is nowhere near a real wrestling show. It was that crappy attempted Vince McMahon doing the Tonight Show. It involved Bobby Heenan going to a cave to find uh, the missing link. It was just bad sketches. I'm like this is dumb. This is kitty crap. I, I watch a real. Re- I watch that real wrestling. <laughs> you know where it's just burly men who drink way too much beer and have beer guts and slobber knock each other. So yeah, I I, I lost interest in '94 with the mainstream wrestling companies, but. At that time, I was able to get Smoky Mountain on a TV channel in college and could watch that and then watch ECW, which was on its ascent, on, on a channel that, that I also had in college. So that was kind of cool. I, I never really got out of touch with wrestling. Um, in fact, I got more in touch with wrestling as, as I grew into my 20s. Uh, Prodigy and then Rexport Pro Wrestling 
was big when I was in college. That was before AOL even got access to it. And all those guys were New Sheets guys. Uh, and it's funny because I was going to tell you the story anyways, but uh, Lou Pickney, who I think is part of the group, and Larry Stern Shine. I used to think it was Larry Stern Sheet. Yeah. That's Larry Stern Shine. <laughs> Larry Stern Shine, yeah. Stern Shine. I was, I've been mispronouncing it for 20-some-odd years <laughs> uh, because I've only seen it in print. But on Prodigy, we were all part of uh, this fantasy wrestling thing where you had to use your own name. So Larry, who I don't know, but I've known him since 1992, would always come in and appear in, like, when, when we got AOL, he'd appear in the in Rex Sport Pro Wrestling. Hey, it's a lethal Larry Sturgeon, because that was the name he used in the, in the group. And then, like, uh, Lou was Lucifer Lou Pickney. And it was always, you had to use your real name and write these promos, which writing the promos made me learn the brevity of wit, so to speak, because there'd be guys who'd write, like, six-page promos to try and get over it. Just like, guys, four sentences, it's enough. If you can be funny into that, you'll be fine. But I started to get more of a community. It was, uh, Prodigy was great, because, and I'm going off on a tangent, and, you know, I, I, I figure this will fill time. Uh, Dutch Mantel was on Prodigy under his real name and was giving advice to people and stuff like that. That's just so cool. And then, like, on Rexport Pro Wrestling, you had Dave Shearer and uh, Rick Skea, for who did news from Dayton. You had Jeff Amdor, who later would do work for Ring of Honor. You had all these guys in the business. And you also had uh, Herb Cunzi, who would always crib all of Dave's work from The Observer and call it news from Herb. That's why I never got into the Observer until very late in my life because I'm like, why do I need that when her basically steals all of these news <laughs> every week and, and do this? But, you know, you, you get these little communities and through that I went to my one other show before I hit my late 30s, early 40s and that was Double Tables ECW up in uh, Philadelphia. That was, uh, that was something. Um, LAUGHTER I had never been to Philadelphia before, but Tully Blanchard had come back to do this program with Shane Douglas. I go, I gotta be there to see this because I may never be able to see Tully Blanchard again. And then he got booed out of the building, so that was, uh, <laughs> was disappointing to say the least. Although it was still a fun card for the night. But you know, as I've gone through life, I've never really lost touch with wrestling. I've just kind of stopped watching it. Right. I yeah. keep up with it on the internet. <laughs> back to answering your question in my own long-winded way. Uh, <laughs> Jeff likes to hear himself talk. No, Jeff just got worried they didn't have enough answers for the questions. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, but it's like I didn't keep up with the week to week and watch it all. Like, I missed, because I didn't like WWF. And I didn't like WWE. It's never been my promotion of choice. And some of the other smaller groups never really did it for me either. And so it'd be like, yeah, you kind of keep up with the business. And you'd meet, I'd meet people out here who'd gone through the WWE writing program. And then eventually when I got into improv, we had wrestlers come in to learn, you know, acting. And so improv was a big part of that. And we've, we had a few wrestlers come in and do that. So I've always been some sort of somewhat tangentially connected because the comedy scene is also just very interwoven with the wrestling scene in many, many ways, especially in Los Angeles. Um, and, and so that's kind of cool. And so you get to talking at the bar and you get to hear stories. And it's kind of 
formed a lot of my opinions on uh, on WWE as I analyzed it a business that and uh, like uh, beyond the mat did a lot to do that. You just pick up various little things that people say at unguarded moments and you go, okay, that, that's developing an opinion of, of what I think of Vince McMahon and how he does things. It helps me in my uh, podcasting career. So what do you watch on a week-to-week basis now? I mean, are you into AEW? Uh, I watch AEW a lot. Um, but I watch things as a critic, which makes it... I don't want to say it's... it's. I have my arms crossed and saying, impress me, but it feels like that at times, and I have, to, I have to actively work to not be that way. Um, I, I, I watch Raw, I watch SmackDown, I watch NXT... I watch NXT UK. Right. <laughs> Me and yeah. 13 other people. Still, but it's the best show they do. It's the best show WWE You and John LaRocca. Right oh. See, LaRocca and I have a lot of similar opinions about wrestling. I love LaRocca. I'm not friends with him, but I want to meet that guy. I really do. Because he and I are kind of on the same wavelength. Um, yeah, because every time I, watch- I see... Sorry, every time I see him post something about NXT UK, I'm like, I've got to get into this. I never do. but So I'm, now, I'm, I'm missing out. Curb your enthusiasm a bit, <laughs> because it's still a WWE product. Right. Yeah. But every one to two weeks, man, they have a blowaway match. They do great vignettes. They have the occasional really good promo. They do character development, which WWE has no interest in doing ever. That's why Jeff Hardy is in his forties and still playing twenty-five-year-old Jeff Hardy. They don't do character development on the main roster. Uh, so. Yeah, but AEW, I, I, <laughs> I don't say it's a love-hate relationship, but it doesn't tickle all the itch that I want. It tickles more the itch than WWE. There's a lot of things I love about AEW. There are some things that drag me downright batty about AEW as well, because I think, I think they are very much, in a weird way, two sides of the same coin, where Vince McMahon is a guy who says no to everything, pretty much, other than stuff that Vince McMahon wants to see. And I feel like in AEW, there's not anybody to say no to right. anything at times. And it becomes kind of what I like to call a jam band type of uh, federation, where it's like, you'll see like the pay-per-view cards going way too long because everybody kind of wants to do everything in it, and they're not really budgeting for time and things like that. But overall... Um, you know, I liked Tony Khan when he was saying, you know, it was going to be more like Mid-South, because that's more of my sweet spot. But it's not, and I can live with that, but there's a lot more good than bad in AEW, definitely. And then on Saturdays, I try to watch some classic wrestling that I never got to grow up with as a kid. Like, I'm trying to catch up on Memphis or All Japan in the early 90s, or Continental has been a recent acquisition of mine. That I've done and just kind of watching, you know, how it used to be, and that helps me frame some of my analysis of today. I don't want it to be like today necessarily, but uh, there are some things you can take from it that goes, this would still work, right. especially in the pandemic era. But uh, yeah, no, I still watch a lot of wrestling because I do a lot of podcasts. And then, like, if I have to do a fightful show, I'll definitely make that a priority. I'll sometimes slack on my watching, but doing a weekly podcast show, it's Somebody made a joke once where it's like, WWE's audience is now nothing but podcasters. And I'm like, that's not too far from the truth. <laughs> it isn't really, is it, when you think about it? 
Because I think a lot of people, if it wasn't for the, if it wasn't their job, I'm not sure they'd actually watch Raw and SmackDown every week. Yeah, I think, but I think people like wrestling and they like the guys, and it's it's weird, and especially like for me, coming from a, both a writing and an acting background in some ways, like people appreciate when you know what they have to go through. Like, for me, I could never, I couldn't, I'm happy I didn't get that job writing for WWE because their writer's room is nothing like a regular television writer's room. And I always try and, I try and analyze wrestling because they like to say that they are, you know, the week-to-week scripted entertainment, blah, 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 type thing. Okay, let's judge this like it's a regular television show and see what that's like. And... There was a time, I don't, you may remember this, you may not, where everybody was trashing the writers on creative. Right. It was, yeah. it was like, you know, these stupid writers, they don't know what they're doing. They shouldn't be in the business, blah, 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 blah. And I was the one guy, at least that I know of, that said, okay, hold on, guys. I've been in writer's room. I know what these guys go through in writer's rooms. They're not in a standard television writer's room. Like, you don't wear a shirt and tie in a, when you're stuck in a conference room with 12 other people with snacks for eight hours trying to bang out you know the ha-has as I do when I was writing comedy it, it, you you know you have to be relaxed you have and you have to be able to share whatever ideas come to your mind freely and if you put out a bad idea in a creative meeting this McMahon's gonna shun you you might get fired you might get insulted in front of all your peers and nobody wants to, that to happen and I, I had a guy from WWE drop in and go, thank you for standing up for us. And I was like, that's that's cool, because I didn't know who listened at the time. I was like, all right, that's kind of cool. And people do that, because here's the thing about Vince, is he's the showrunner. All, all television shows have a showrunner with a vision. And if you don't conform to that guy's vision, if that guy doesn't know what he's doing, it's going to be a bad television show. And that, to me, is Vince's problem. Vince is the kid in class who decided to he's the guy who thinks if he he got a B on a paper once he did at the last minute so he thinks the adrenaline is what helped him get the better grade right there's there's a lot of that in in, in his booking if you notice that um you know it's it's done a little bit on the fly the long-term planning isn't there on regular television shows you'd have an entire season mapped out before you even sat down and started thinking about the scripts but they don't necessarily do that because it goes week to week and, you know, whatever the whims are. And it, it's it's got to be difficult for those guys in creative. It, it really does because, you know, some of them are bad sitcom slash sketch comedy writers. Don't get me wrong. There are some valid criticisms of some of the writing team that they hire because I know some of the people that they hired at times. But there are people in there that generally love, genuinely love wrestling and genuinely want to put on a good show, and they're not given the chance. And I think that there are things writers can do and producers can do to help talent make it a better show that they are just not allowed to do, even though they think it's a film company as opposed to a wrestling company. And that's the other thing you know, I took wrong beyond the mat. It's like, uh, you know, Vince is in central casting, but you have these writers, and they can write dialogue for these guys. But the, you just don't. You get the expositional... On Sunday, I'm going to fight you in this match at Blacklash, blah, blah, blah. And there, there's no emotional depth. There's no character development. There's no relationship. There's no feeling in that. It's just it's just get to the chopper, and then we'll get away. It's that kind of dialogue. It's crap. And Well, did you see but, WrestleMania this year? Yeah. I like 
overall. And I was going to say, the, the, obviously the rain delay and then having to sort of... Well, they had to have guys go out there and cut promos yeah. completely unscripted and it was, it was night and day. It was awesome, wasn't it? it yeah, was it was awesome. Yeah, it was night and day compared to what we normally see. Yeah. And if you leave guys... That's the other thing is, for the most part, these guys know what they're doing. And they, if they got the chance to really cut real promos, and that's going to be part of my answer for what I think could be better for the uh, for the for the entire business. But uh, no, that that was I mean it was exciting watching them go off the cuff, some more than others. Miz and Morrison, obviously, back there choreographing moves and lines, which makes me ashamed because they're two guys who have been through improv systems, should know better. The teacher of improv. Shocked him, sad, but uh, yeah, and yeah, it felt like there was more energy. And then they cut those promos out of out of the replay on Peacock. I don't know if you noticed that. I didn't notice it, but someone mentioned it, and I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like why why are you taking the most fun thing about that first night? <laughs> yeah, and, and putting it off the TV. It's like I want to go back and relive that because I was kind of hyped to see. I, actually, I was hoping the rain would continue. Because I really want to see Drew and Bobby Lashley have just a backstage brawl for the title. I thought that would have been a lot more fun than what they did in the ring. Not that what they did was bad, but it would have been interesting. I like interesting. Give me interesting. We come on to the next part of the show, which is rapid-fire questions. But, you know, it's, it's not rapid-fire. I don't think you could ever do anything rapid-fire anyway, could you? Look at the clock. I'm thinking you'd want me to do rapid-fire. <laughs> But favorite wrestler of all time? Who, who would Tully you Blanchard. have to choose for that? Tully, Tully, Tully. I loved. Um, he wasn't Ric Flair, but he was trying to be Ric Flair. It's like if Ric Flair got custom suits and stuff, Tully Blanchard thought he could be Ric Flair by going to like a high-end store at the mall and buy a suit and do the same thing. But I just loved his, the chip on his shoulder, and he still has it today. If you watch his promos, he still has that kind of anger in him. Like, you don't respect me enough, and I always connected with that. And the next question is, favorite match of all time? So what would you go for for that? Magnum Tully, I quit. Because it felt like a fight. It felt real. That crowd was hot. They wanted blood. They wanted somebody to die in that ring tonight. And uh, if you watch that, and, you know, the cr- just the crowd noise. I miss that kind of pre-kayfabe... Christians and the Lions in the Coliseum type of feeling when, 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 which Jim Crockett produced because they had that crowd mic so hot every show that they did. For someone who just sort of missed out on the on Magnum, how how big was he and how big could he have been? I always temper this because I do this with the cynical knowledge of how Dusty would book. Magnum TA could have been the next big thing in Jim Crockett. But Dusty Rhodes, number one, always wanted to be the number one babyface. And he always had a habit of putting the belt on the guy. Not the, not the time you should have, but the next time when they're trying to rebuild their heat, their steam, and they haven't quite got there. Like Barry Windham, Sting, Luger. It was all the same time. It's like, you should have belted him here. But you weighed it a little bit too, and there's a little bit of shine off of it. I think Magnum would have been big, but I'm a little bit, 
I take a different path as to what his future would have been if he had been able to continue wrestling. I think he would have left for WWF, and I think he right. would have been a big star there. I think if Vince could have treated an ex-NWA guy as a super-duper star, I think it would have been Magnum. It would have been him, yeah. And I think it would have, would have gotten a different name and probably be a truck driver. <laughs> they probably would have called him Harley Davidson. You know, and he'd come out in the in a motorcycle, whatever dumb gimmick. But I think, I honestly think Magnum TA would have thrived in the WWF. And I, I tend to think, I tend to think he doesn't, Dusty doesn't put the belt on him at, at that Starcade against Flair if they had gone through with that. And I think they would have eventually had a falling out. And I think, I think he would have left and gone to see what he could have done with Vince. I do. Um, and then depending on how Vince treats him, he could have been a big, he would have been a big superstar regardless. Right. Uh, it's just how big of a star he could have been. Because his promos are a little rough around the edges if you watch it, but they were always they were always intense. And he also had that thing that I call it the uh, the, the heartthrob factor is not big in wrestling these days. Even though the guys are more in shape than they've ever been, there's not there's not a lot of women coming to shows to scream at the good looking, muscled up, jacked up, oiled dude. Like they were in the 80s. But I do think Magnum would have been a big star. I just don't know if he would have been transcendent. The best show you ever attended live. What would you choose for that? I'm going to go a little weird with people here, I think, that know me. It's later in my life. It was really that first during uh, WrestleMania in Northern California. I forget if it's Palo Alto or... San Francisco or whatever they were doing it at that new at the new 49er stadium at the time but they decided to do it wasn't an NXT takeover NXT was just really getting a lot more buzz than the main roster at the time and so they did a they did a show at San Jose State University and I went with Damian Gonzalez who's part of the fight game crew here right. and then also yeah. uh, Chris Harrington and his wife who Mr. Harrington, for those who don't know, Mookie Ghana is now vice president of business stuff for AEW. Right, yep. And that show, because I loved NXT. NXT really kept me, like, Shake Them Rope started, and we were analyzing the top 100 matches to see before you die, and it hit my sweet spot, because then I could talk about all these 80s matches from WCW and Crockett to someone like Rob, who was younger than me. But as soon as that list got done or we were, like, into it, I was just like, well, what are we going to do next? Because I hate talking about the main roster. And that's when, like, the network started to come on. Uh, you know, you could get it. The, the network was built, basically, and launched, as opposed to watching NXT on Hulu, which I think was the only place you could get it. But I watched that first episode, and the horsewomen, it was, it, they weren't the horsewomen yet. It was, they were actually low on the card, Bailey and Sasha opened up that show. I believe Bailey had Natty as a friend, and Sasha and Charlotte were in the BFFs at the time, and they just had this prelim match. And it had this unrepentantly comedic moment, which I laughed at. They were great wrestlers, and they had chemistry, and I was like, I really like this NXT. And, of course, as they kept getting more and more guys, you know, the Cesaros, the Sami Zayn's got to wrestle, the Adrian Neville slash Pac, the, you know, all those, it, and it became hotter and hotter. 
it was such a joy to watch for like one hour. Get in, get out. The takeovers were awesome, but that first show they decided to try and do to see if they could see if they could really do things like takeover at full sale. That was really my favorite show. It was a great experience. Great company. I had never bought a wrestling shirt before. I, I, I somehow, for some reason, got was so like enraptured with how that show made me feel. I bought a shirt of the company on the way out. I was like, what am I doing? I was like, I'm trying to on the way home. I'm like, I'm supporting WWF by giving them money for a shirt. What a geek I am. But it was just, it was, it was such a great, like, everybody was there to have a good time and to watch it, and the show was really, really good. It wasn't a great show, but the atmosphere was something I hadn't felt since being in Virginia and going to some of those terrible house shows. You know, the main events were great, but the undercard was nothing to speak about, but the audience was always into it. And it did, like, when I went to WWF shows the occasional time, or even... God help me, I went to an XPW 2002 show called Freefall where New Jack and, uh, and uh, Vic Grimes ended up falling through all those tables from a scaffold. Those, and the ECW crowd, those crowds were either scary or, like, even now, if I go to like a WWF main Big Four show, the, those crowds feel, you can't fill the arenas with noise from those crowds. They get silent, it feels corporate feels a little staged. It's not raw. That that audience feeling isn't raw anymore, and I liked that feeling I had coming out of that San Jose show. So that's probably my favorite show that I've ever been to, if I had to pick one. So what are some of the big shows you have been to, though? I really... You know, it's weird. I didn't really start traveling until I was in my 40s. Uh, but I've been to, like, the last three or four WrestleManias, other than this year. Uh... And the one in Met Park, I went to those, and I go to like the indie shows around there, and I really was enjoying like the Evolves and uh, and the Rev Pros. I thought those were good, and to see the New Japan people, I kind of I watch New Japan when when it's interesting, and you know when I have time to keep up with it. I, I go to PWG shows. Started going back to those. I went in the early aughts when you know I was trying to find a home, and then I. Started going back regularly in like around 2011 when all the British guys were coming out. That was when you know Zack Saber and Tommy right. End and and uh, Will Osprey and all them. It was you know it was basically a British invasion of PWG because I was you know on unplucked territory at the time. Uh, uh, you know I I'll go. I've been to a couple of Rumbles. I went went to the Rumble in Philly a few years ago where Nakamura and Asuka both won. That was a blast and that takeover was a lot of fun. I'll go to like the takeovers in Los Angeles. I went to War Games. That was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, the takeover in Dallas was memorable. That was the one where uh, Nakamura and Zayn went at it. And that was a dream match. And then they had that Joe Finn Balor match where they stopped because of blood. Right. I was there with Paul Fontaine and Jason Robar, who were members of the crew. That was fun. Although I will never forget, forgive Paul Fontaine for uh, if for the too sweet thing on every two count. Oh, that is his creation. His creation. Must, yeah, and he'll always remind people no of that. He gets no money from that. He gets no money from that. That's a shame. He's so bitter <laughs> about that as well, isn't he? He's really bitter about that. <laughs> I, I did that. He was just supposed to stand on a chair and scream to the heavens, hey, I did that. I mean, he should. 
but it, but you know, it's kind of like the what chant. You know, it's like one of those things that was cute, and then it just got a life of its own. Now you just kind of go. Now, now it happens. You just kind of turn to Paul and go, "Son of a." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, you know, there's things I like in wrestling still, and there's you know, there there's a lot of old school in AEW. There's the unrepentant stupidity, which I love of uh, Toru Yano. In New Japan, something I love. I love bad. I love bad men doing bad things, and then I like having my palate cleansed with a little bit of unrepentantly stupid stuff, like Toru Yano, who is a perfect. He's a deconstruction of pro wrestling, and it's great. Like all he wants to do is go in there, not do a lot of work, sell his merchandise, you know, make the fans happy and leave. That, that's that's carny culture to me, brother. That's that's all that ever was. So yeah. Um, I've been to a lot more shows in the past few years because I like the people in the fight game group. And I like the people, you know, the people I've met from the figure four board because I did, uh, I've done a few of those conventions and gone to some UFC shows with people there and met a lot of good people. It, it's weird because it's like you used to only know people online and then you go out and you meet. And the people you meet are much better than the people who just stay online. That's what I found too. Like, a lot of jerks just online. The people you meet who usually aren't online that much, are very, very nice. And the final question. Well, it might be the final question. We'll see. But the final question, if you could change... Look, one... I can talk about a lot of stories if you want other than these questions, Dan. I will go three hours and make this a Voices of Wrestling podcast. If it wasn't, <laughs> if it wasn't nearly midnight, we... <laughs> Maybe. Don't you have to cut me off. I'd, t- I'd take you up on that. Maybe I can just go to bed and just leave it recording and you can just take yeah, me Yeah, sure. But... Nobody likes to talk about me better than me. Go ahead. But if you could change one thing about wrestling, and I, I imagine you could, you would probably want to change quite a few things. But if you could change only one thing, what would it be? I've alluded to this already, but I think the real boom in wrestling, or if you ever wanted to get even more moderately hot again, look, I can, I'll, I'll take away the things that I don't care for. Like I don't. It's too much choreography to me in wrestling. I like kind of the fight feel and wearing a guy down. But I think promos are where the money is. I think you make money with your mouth. When you see kids, you know, playing wrestler, sure they can do a couple of moves and stuff. But what are they? What are they making? What are they imitating? They're imitating lines that they see guys say on TV. You know, they're doing the woo for Ric Flair. They're saying, you know, know your role and shut your mouth for the rock. You know, Austin three sixteen flipping the middle fingers and stuff. I think there has to be more promos. I think they have to be emotionally connected. I think they have to be earnest in many ways. I think you need to feel the heat. I think you need to feel people that hate each other, and then you can build stories from there. You can have all the writers in the world, but if they're not, if the actors aren't feeling anything when they're saying their lines, it doesn't mean anything. And For me, I thought the pandemic would really be the opening of a studio wrestling boom because I think think studio wrestling did this better than most. I think the WWF green screen type of promos that you saw in the 80s and 90s did this well and did it, and that's why it was far more interesting. Like, you can't... Like, I'm, I'm tired of having promos in the ring in front of a full audience. I think you can play those in front of the audience and have them there, like you can do them backstage, I'd much prefer that. I want promos into the camera, 
because I want people looking at having that connection in the audience. Isn't that something you think camera? that Drew McIntyre really embraced and did really well during the pandemic? I think Drew's problem was casting. I think Drew did it well, and I think he did his job well. But Vince has this thing with his main guys where he's not sure what kind of hero he wants to portray them as at times. And so you'll see them, like, they did this with Roman for like three weeks in a row. One week he'd come out and be this suave ladies' man. The next week he'd come out and be the the smart-alecky, quipster type of guy. And the next week he'd come out and be the badass hero type of thing. Drew came out and was kind of giving what I'd call a disaffected promo. He was, you know, he was being witty and funny, but he was kind of disconnected from it. He was like, oh, I just suppose somebody's going to come down here and the music's going to hit type of thing. Kind of that breaking the fourth wall thing. And I think breaking the fourth wall can be done occasionally, but I don't think it should be done as much in wrestling as it is. Right. Do you think that the pipe bomb promo, the, the success of that is to blame a little bit for that? A little bit, but the pipe bomb promo felt real to me. Right. Even though we knew it wasn't, but it felt real. It felt like edgy. It felt like he was saying something he shouldn't. And that's what's missing. You know, for all the things that Raw says about being live, they used to oh, the unexpected can happen. Man, that thing is the most scripted, patterned thing on earth. Kind of like Saturday Night Live used to be. Saturday Night Live used to be much more dangerous than it is now, but... You know, I, I think Drew did a good job with a bad script, is how I put Drew. I think he's a decent actor. I think he could... I would much rather you put a camera on him for 45 seconds go, Drew, what do you got to say? How do you feel about this? And, and if I ever produce, and I've offered to produce, you know, do a workshop with people, and I've done some with some indie guys here, and, I, I, you know, basically get your emotion first, and the words will follow. And that was what was missing for me from Drew Pros. He'd get to the emotion eventually. He'd get to about three-quarters away. He'd get mad. And you'd go, okay, that's the draw I want to see. But the first three-quarters was the exposition. The last night at WrestleMania, Bobby Lashley and MVP, that kind of yeah. pattern type of speech. And that, But then he'd get mad about it finally. That's what he should have started with. He had started with, I'm pissed that Bobby Lashley screwed me out of this title. Now let me tell you what I'm going to do to you, Bobby Lashley. And then, then we're all on the edge of the seat watching going, oh, Oh, somebody's gonna die tonight, and that's what gets you know. That's what gets me going. Say, oh, here we go, kind of thing. So yeah, I would go with more promos, especially to the camera, not those Kayla, Charlie Caruso looking at a forty-five degree angle as if you're talking to a news person. No, talk to us, the audience. Make that connection, and you'll find a lot more connected fans as opposed to guys who think they're watching a show about wrestling which is what Raw and SmackDown both come off as, is that Muppet Show, 30 Rock, hey, we're not watching the sketch show or the variety show, we're watching the show about the backstage machinations and and the, uh, you know, the, the, the I call Raw and SmackDown nothing but office politics at WWE, because that's all it is, it's, you know, oh, I want the corner office. I want the corner office. We're going to have a fight right now. Hooray. You know, that kind of crap. But I think promos and really good promos, like the Briscoes, good promos, they're fantastic. I love them. I love Jack Evans if he ever got the mic. I like MJF. I wish he'd cut back on the self-aware comedy a little bit. And But he has the skills. I think there's a lot of guys that have promo skills that don't get to use them. 
And I think they just got to, even if you have to tape them, even if you have to do three or four takes to get right, it doesn't have to be live. It just has to be good. And that's my problem with promos is that they're just not good. And good matches aren't going to be enough. I know people will disagree with me on that. And like, oh, that's a well-worked five-star, six-star match. If you have good matches every week, it starts to be the law of diminishing returns. Now, if you have a great promo like once every two or three weeks, then, then shit becomes memorable to me. And, you know, I differ a little bit in, in my generation, I think, but I, I do think, and, you know, I know this is a long answer, and I apologize, I'll wrap this up real quick, but, like, <laughs> the Jake the Snake Roberts promos that were quiet, you can't do those in front of a live audience. You have to do those in front of a green screen or do a mic. But they got him over, and that's why people love Jake Roberts. Well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, you, you go to your actors... And you find their talents in their talking. They can't talk, get a manager in there to talk for them. But you get them over by talking. You don't get them over by doing cool moves and stuff. You know, and, and, and it's all about character development for me. And that's what I think, that's the thing I change in wrestling, is really character development through promos and feud building through promos. And some of the best promo work that guys do in WWE, they get to do on like Talking Smack or whatever. Yes. And, and people don't see those shows. Yes, oh, I love Talking Smack as an improv workshop. It is. And even when Daniel Bryan was on there, and Daniel Bryan would be trolling guys to get reactions out of them, that was so beautiful. Uh, more so than Raw Talk. But yeah, like, the NXT social media team has been great for six or seven years in doing these types of things and these vignettes and these talking promos and stuff. And you get mad because you see this stuff on social media and go, that's so great. Why isn't it on the TV? Exactly, because yeah. yeah. BTE brought that up this week at times. And screw that. I'll say it over and over again. I want the I want the good stuff on TV. I don't care about the plugs and the catchphrases and the other thing. I want to see promos and I want to see good feuds and then I'll be invested in the match. Not the other way around. I won't see a match and then get invested in the feud. Jeff, we could talk all night. I, I say that... To most people, but with you, it, it really is quite <laughs> appropriate to say because, yeah, I mean, all I basically have to say to you is hello and uh, off you go. Yeah, sorry. No, it's, it's that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I love. But see, I love talking about wrestling. I do, and it's when somebody's actually engaged and interested, like you are, and finding out why people get to this thing. I think you're an engaging dude who does an engaging podcast. So I, you know, I'm happy to talk. Well, we we, we are part of such a great online community with the the fight game podcast Facebook group, and uh, I've had so many of them, so many of the people from that group on this show now, and will continue to. And it's been, yeah, it's been great. It's it's the highlight of my highlight of my week to to sit down with one of you guys and and, and talk wrestling. So. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Same. Go to bed. Go to sleep. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> for Jeff, I am David. Thank you for listening and uh, join me next time for another episode of the How I Caught the Wrestling Bug podcast. <laughs>